This begins the next section. So chapter 23, verse 19, through chapter 24, verse 7, now deals with the Eighth Commandment. And the Eighth Commandment is do not steal. So all these commandments deal with stealing. So verse 19, you must not charge interest on a loan to your fellow Israelite, whether money, food, or anything else that has been loaned with interest. You may lend interest to a foreigner, but not to your fellow Israelites. Now, we've already talked about this in numbers, but basically you're not allowed to charge interest to your fellow people. If only America had this rule. (laughs) All your loans, no interest. I mean, every time I pay my mortgage, I cry over the interest. Mm -hmm. So the reality is you're not allowed to do Now, you're allowed to do this with a foreigner, because the idea is the foreigner is not a part of the covenant community. The reality is there is a difference of being in the covenant community and being outside the covenant community. Now, it does not say that you have the right to cheat or mistreat or gouge the foreigner in interest. It just says that you're allowed to charge interest. And probably the idea is the foreigner is not a part of the covenant community, so there's a different reputation with the foreigner, and there's no guarantee that they're contributing to the community. And so the interest is protecting the people in the community from the foreigner trying to cheat them. But the fact that you're in the community now and you're part of the covenant, you're not allowed to charge your brother or sister an interest because you don't have to fear them cheating you because if they do cheat you, then they're under God who they made a covenant with. And he's going to hold them accountable. Then God goes through vows. And it's interesting how often God just keeps talking about vows. I mean, this is the second time we've talked about vows in Deuteronomy. He ended Leviticus with vows. He ended Numbers with vows. And he just keeps going and says, you basically must honor your vows. You must honor your vows. Chapter 24, verse 1. If a man marries a woman and she does not please him because he has found something offensive in her, then he may draw up a divorce document, give it to her, and evict her from his house. And when she has left him, she may go and become someone else's wife. And if the second husband rejects her and then divorces her, gives her papers, and evicts her from her his house, or if the second husband who married her dies, her first husband who divorced her is not permitted to remarry her after she has become richly impure for that is offensive to Yahweh. You must not bring guilt on the land which Yahweh your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now, this is interesting because just got done talking about how God hates divorce and at the same time he's allowing divorce. Now remember, this is, the law is complicated. But remember, the law is not always having laws where God says this is his ideal. And you see this all throughout the Bible. God says to David, you are not to build a temple. I don't want a temple. Do not build a temple. That's a pretty clear command from God. So what does David go do? He builds a temple. And then God's glory enters it. You're like, wait a minute. Why did you do that? Because the reality is God says, I don't want a temple. But they built a temple anyways. But God chooses to use it. Because that's what they have now. And he made covenant promises to them. God says, you are not to have a king. You are not allowed to have a king. I am your king. You are not allowed to have a king like all the other nations. 
And so what they asked for? We want a king like all the nations. And what does God give them? He gives them a king like all the other nations. Because sometimes God allows his people to do what he is expressly forbidden because of their persistent stubbornness. And because God is a redeeming God, he uses it anyways. You're not allowed to sin. If you sin, I will not dwell with you, and I will not honor my promises. And we sin, and what does God do? He dwells with us, and he honors his promises. And so there's a difference between the will of God and the will of God. The absolute will of God is what he would will in a perfect world. Then there's the will of God of what he wills with what he has. Now, God has every right to just literally wipe us all out and create a completely different race of people who will be obedient to him. But God's will is that none shall perish, too. And so you've got a God that says, I don't want these things. But then you have a God that says, but I don't want you to perish and I want to redeem you. So now God has to take his perfect will and with his, I have no idea what to call it, other will, and he merges them together. And he chooses to use it, redeem it, even though it's not exactly what he wanted. Did God want polygamy? No. But did he still use polygamous people? And remember, too, like I said last week, there's a difference between allowing something and regulating it, too. So God doesn't allow murder, but he knows that murder is going to happen, so what does he do? He regulates it. He talks about what you deal with premeditated murder and what you do with manslaughter. His desire is that nobody does manslaughter, but the reality is he did, so this is what you do with him. I don't want you to be polygamous, but if you are going to be polygamous, you're not allowed to favor one wife or one kid over the other. And so what God is saying is, is I don't really want divorce, but if you're going to get divorced, then you violated your covenant by sending her away. And now she hooked up with somebody else, which means you're not allowed to steal her back. You're not allowed to steal her back. Because that's theft. You gave her up, you sent her off. You violated your covenant, you sent her away, and then now her husband died or somebody else sent her away, and now you're trying to take her back. You're not allowed to do that. This is where you must understand. This is, where, this is what really bothers me about the modern-day American church. We have the audacity to be hateful and condemning towards homosexuality and affairs, but then we just act like divorce is just, well, bad things happen. That kind of stinks. And partly because of laws like this, we've completely misunderstood. Because it doesn't matter whether this law is here or not, what really matters is what God says. And what God says is in the prophets, I hate divorce. That's pretty strong. And when Ezra at the end of the book of Nehemiah is like sending everybody, making everybody divorce each other and sending them away, that's portrayed as a very bad thing. They never talk to God. They never consult God. Ezra's forcing them all in this divorce and sending them away. And you'll just have to wait for those two books of Ezra and Nehemiah. But there's this constant theme of the Jews sending people away, sending people away, sending people away. Just after a whole bunch of prophets said, the new Israel will include everybody. Invite everybody in. Invite everybody in. And then Ezra and Nehemiah are like, go away, go away, go away. 
And so when they force everybody in divorce and send them away, it becomes very clear that that was bad. So the narrator is making clear that Ezra was bad for forcing divorces. God says, I hate divorce. God's character never divorces us. In fact, he dies for us. And even Jesus says, why did Moses allow for divorce? Because your hearts are hard. Because you're going to do it anyways. And because you, would re- you refuse to pay attention to the character of God. Because you refuse to pay attention to what he was saying. Because you're selfish. Because you're only interested in yourself. Because your hearts were so hard. Moses allowed you to have a divorce because it's better than everything else you were going to do. Because you probably would have started having affairs and all this kind of stuff. Because that's what people do when they feel like they can't have a divorce. They start having affairs. And then that would have been destroying. And we already know that you know people by their fruit. And does, fruit, does divorce ever produce good fruit? No. So how can God say that this is righteous when it always produces bad fruit? Now, if you've been divorced or you, some of your family has been divorced, this is not, well, kind of is a judgment by God. But remember, with God, there's also forgiveness and redemption. And that divorce is no different than any other sin. But what it does mean is you can't use it as an excuse because the reality is divorce is still a sin. And divorce is still a sin that sent Jesus Christ to the cross. And to act like divorce is just a cultural thing that kind of sucks, but then turn on homosexuality and condemn it, that's hypocrisy. We should see all sins as sins that sent Christ to the cross but also see all people as people that God loves and willing to die for. But oftentimes we condemn people that should not be condemned as if they're evil, and we permit certain sins as if they're not as bad. If we're going to be consistent, all sins are horrific, but all people are loved and forgiven by God if they repent. Now, I know it's a little bit more complicated than that, but that's just a based on the conversation. So this is what God's saying. Yes, they may. Not that they're allowed to have a divorce, but when he does get divorced, this is what he must do to keep from sinning even more. Interesting, when we get to David, David's first wife was a girl by the name of Michael or Mikael, however you want to say it. And he basically got married to her. And then when he fled Saul, he abandoned her. And then he got married again, got married again, got married again. And got married again, 20 years later he comes back and she's been remarried because when your husband abandons you for 20 years, it's kind of obvious. So he gets married, so what does David do? I want her back. And he forces her away from her husband and her husband is falling behind her crying and sobbing, but there's nothing you can do because if you disobey the king, you die. And Joab, David's, they basically, or Abner, basically threatens, says, we'll kill you. Go away, go back home or we'll kill you. And David forces her back into a marriage with him after stealing her from her husband after he abandoned her the first time. It's a violation of the specific law. It's a violation of the specific law. Once you understand the law and then you go through the life of David, you realize, ooh, we've put him unjustly on a pedestal. There's no way any of you would ever let David anywhere near your daughter's. And if you did, you should be executed. And yet we're like, oh, David, this amazing person. But he is called a man after God's heart. But we'll get to that. He's complicated. Verse 5. 
When a man is newly married, he need not go into the army nor be obligated in any way. He must be free to stay at home for a full year and bring joy to the wife that he has married. This is an interesting law. You're not allowed to take a newly married man and send him into war unless he's been married for at least a year. Now why? Why is that considered theft? Because you're stealing him away from his bride. You're stealing him away from his bride. They just got married. They got to be together. And we all know that first year of marriage is so crucial. I mean, every year of marriage is crucial, but especially that one. So the reality is, one, it is not good for newly married people to go into battle because they're easily distracted and they die and people around them die. And you know this. Have you ever noticed this? Every single time somebody in a movie pulls out a picture in a foxhole and says, this is my girlfriend. We just got married. I'm going back there. You know immediately what's going to happen. He's going to die every single time. There's not one. I've watched a lot of more war movies, and there's always one guy who pulls out a picture, and he always dies. So the moral of the story is keep your pictures in your pocket if you go to war. <laughs> so you can't, but you're easily distracted. That's what you're thinking about. You're not thinking intelligently, too. War is hell, and very few people come back. And the reality is they didn't have a chance to really, truly be together, and that's a theft to a certain extent. And three, the only reason that wars are worth fighting, and I say that with, like, for lack of a better phrase, is because you have something that you're fighting for. And if you haven't been emotionally connected to this woman, and you haven't really developed roots, then there is no sense of wanting to get back or, or fighting for a cause and you don't have a future. And so there's all these different psychological things we could talk about. But what God is saying is, give them at least a year to be together. Because to not even have a year, that's theft. That's theft. You're stealing them away from the bride. And that's theft. Verse 6. One must not take either lower or upper milestones as security on a loan, for that is like taking a life itself security. So you're not allowed to take a millstone. Millstones for grinding grain. If you take it from somebody as collateral or any kind of way, they can't grind grain, which means they can't eat, which means they die, which means you're a theft and a murder. If a man, verse 7, is found kidnapping a person from among his fellow Israelites and regards him as mere property and sells them, that kidnapper must die. And this way you will purge the evil from among you. So that's theft of a human, and that is punishable by death. So that's the end of that section.